book of Galatians this morning, the first chapter, if you want to turn there. Um, but first, who am I? Fastest growing religious group in America. Second largest religious constituency in the U.S. Oh, there's only more Catholics. At almost 56 million people, they represent about one in four American adults. And for those under 30, it's one in three. It's a huge percentage of our population. It's the nuns. Well, not those ones, Dan. Nuns. As in, none of the above. Religiously unaffiliated. If you paid attention to the news last week, I believe it was, uh, there was a lot of reporting about a recent Pew research came out about this group and how rapidly they have been growing. But in 2012, Time Magazine cover story was 10 ideas that are changing your life, and number four on their list was the rise of the nuns. Gallup in 2012 says the rise in the religious nuns over time is one of the most significant trends in religious measurement in the United States. In 2012, another Pew research stated the last five years alone, so from 2007 to 2012, it grew from just under 15% of our population to 20%. And two years later, it grew another 3%. The growth of the nuns in 1940 was 5%. 50 years later, it grew to 8.1%. 18 years later, it grew to 15%. Four years later, it grew to 19%. And two years after that, it was 23%. They're not atheists or agnostics. They're not hostile to religion. 68% believe in God or a universal spirit. Only 27% say there is no God. 21% say they pray daily, and another 20% pray weekly or monthly. Many don't read the Bible, they don't pray, they don't wish, worship, but they still consider themselves spiritual, spiritual, or 37% are this group I mentioned last week who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. And among those 18 to 29 years old, it jumps to 75%. David Kinneman from Barna Research said perception of local churches as a valuable part of the community. They see the church as important and valuable. They're not anti-church. They just don't care about it. They have no interest in church or organized religion. They aren't seeking. They don't care. And 72% of them seldom or never attend a religious service. This American Religious Identification Service was done a few years ago. It's the largest study ever done of its kind. Almost 300,000 Americans were surveyed, and the challenge to Christianity, they said, does not come from other religions like Islam, but from a rejection of all forms of organized religion. They're not thinking about religion and rejecting it. They're simply not thinking about it at all. That is the world we are living in. When Barna Research interviewed this group, they found one of their major criticisms of Christians and the church was that they consider us intolerant and exclusive. They say, what right do you have to tell me that I am wrong? That is the world we live in. In such a world, Paul would not have been very popular. 
especially what he has to say to the Galatians, because the whole purpose of the letter to Galatia was to correct a church and tell them they're heading in the wrong direction, that they're being wrong. You know, there's 26 books in the New Testament. Half of them, 13 of them, were written by the Apostle Paul. Four of those books that he wrote were to individual. Nine were to churches. And even when there were serious problems to address, in eight of the nine churches he wrote to, right after his initial greeting, Paul begins with words of affirmation. Words like, I always thank my God for you, as he does in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, he starts with, Praise be to God for them. But Galatians is different. Because the situation there was so dire, he breaks decorum by not including any of the normal pleasantries. He jumps right in when he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's concern throughout the letter is not to attack specific sins or behavior, but doctrine within the church. False beliefs that dealt specifically with the nature of the gospel and salvation itself. And while he doesn't condemn anyone's right to believe anything they want, he's not intolerant to the world around him. But when it came to the gospel itself, he felt compelled to clearly state that they were wrong if they were distorting it. The gospel is not a potluck or buffet where you get to go through the line picking and choosing the things you like and rejecting the things you don't. It's a built around God as he is, not as we want him to be or want to make him to be. And so what we believe is important. And in the name of toleration and acceptance, we cannot sacrifice the truth of the gospel. If we do, it's no longer good news, which is what the word gospel means. Doctrine matters. It's an important point, and yet especially to many modern ears, that can sound so narrow-minded. The most recent Pew survey found 74% of Americans say they believe in God. Over 70% say they're Christian. And 50% say they've had a significant religious experience. That people often would rather believe that as long as someone believes in God, that's all there is. That's okay. But if you take that view, you have to ask, which God are they talking about? Do we really want to accept, as just a minor difference among us, a belief in a God that he was once a person just like we are, 
And through hard work and obedience, he earned his way to become a God of his own. And if you work hard enough also, you can become a God in your own right. It's a very different God than you find in Scripture. Yet that is the teaching of one major group. Despite the fact that they teach that they are the only true church, the rest of us are apostate, they spend millions of dollars each year trying to find acceptance from the rest of the Christian world, as they call it, that they're just another denomination. They're so effective at it, in fact, that 75% of their converts come from Christian churches. But we want to believe, as long as someone accepts Jesus Christ, they must be a Christian. But again, which Christ? There's another group that claims to believe in Jesus, and using Romans chapter 5, they call him the second Adam. But they say when people refused to accept him, he couldn't finish the work he was given, so he was crucified. He failed. Calvary and the cross were a defeat. And so, God had to send another Christ, whom they called the third Adam, to finish the work. And now, if you want to be saved, you have to accept and follow him if you want to be saved. Clearly, a very different Christ from the one we find in God's word. You know, within a year or so after I started my first, very first pastorate, there was a young couple that came to see me one day during the week. They said they had some really important information they needed to share with me. And as we sat and talked, they offered to give Lola and I a free trip to the birthplace of their founder and a special tour of all the significant sites related to his life and his visions. Even though they believed they were the only true church, that I was apostate and others with me, they still desperately wanted acceptance and were willing to spend millions of dollars on a PR campaign to send pastors and their wives from Christian churches to the birthplace of their founder. That Christ? Then there's the group that believes that Jesus is the brother of Satan. The devil wanted to be savior and got mad when God chose Jesus instead, and so this sibling rivalry has been going on ever since. They too claim to be the true church, and the rest of us apostate, but then they work hard at finding acceptance as another denomination. 80% of their followers come as converts from Christian churches. Islam believes in Jesus, but then they say he was just another prophet, a man. Buddhism believes in Jesus, but then he became enlightened like Buddha and some others. Hinduism believes in Jesus, and either he became an enlightened man and merged with a universal consciousness, or he was an incarnation or avatar of their god Vishnu. Then there's millions who say they believe in Jesus as Lord or Savior, but it means nothing in their lives. So which Jesus? Can't all be right, can we? Yet that's what current thought says. What right do you have to say, I'm wrong? I have my truth, you have your truth. Or as Stephen Colbert so famously put it when he defined his word truthiness, which is now in the Webster's Dictionary, truth doesn't come from a book, it comes from the gut. It's how you feel. And just because someone uses familiar words and phrases doesn't mean they have the same meaning. People can believe whatever they want, 
that is a part of what it means for us to live in a pluralistic society. But as soon as they claim to be a part of the Christian body, to have proclaimed the gospel itself, we have a responsibility not simply to accept it, but to check it against God's word. That's what Paul told the Corinthians when he said, what business is it of ours to judge those outside of the church? But inside the church, are we not to judge those? The Apostle John, the one who spoke so forcefully about love, wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not, because there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. Peter says we need to be always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason of the hope we have, but we must do it with gentleness and respect. In Acts, Paul told the church in Ephesus that he knew after he was gone, people would come into the church and distort the truth in order to gain their own following. So he says, be on your guard. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets or teachers because they'll come in sheep's clothing, they'll look fine, they'll sound fine, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves, he said. Knowing what and who we believe in is important. Worship is great, but are you in a Bible study to get to know this God you say you believe in? Are you spending time in God's word? How else can you get to know him than studying and reading what he has revealed about himself? Instead of spending time simply reading blogs and web postings, do you ever read and learn from other faithful believers? Do you know what it is you believe? Which God? Which Christ? Paul said he was astonished here in Galatians. He was amazed. In other words, he was shocked at what was happening in the churches. Believers were offering little resistance. Almost eagerly, he says, turning from the gospel to accept other teachings. And as they did so, he said, they were deserting the one who called them. That word deserting is the same one that would be used of a soldier deserting his post in battle. It was as if they were running away from God and his grace to embrace other teachings that were more attractive and acceptable. The word for different gospel here doesn't mean simply turning to something that's similar, like watching the Wahini volleyball team instead of the warrior volleyball team. They're both volleyball. Rather, it means turning to something completely different in nature. It's like instead of watching the NFL, you watch the NBA. The message they were turning to wasn't a matter of interpretation, in other words, but it was a different message completely. So he calls it no gospel at all. It wasn't good news. You know, at last count, there were well over 300 different groups in the United States, all claiming to be the true Christian church, but meeting what Paul says here, proclaiming a different gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. In verse 6, he goes so far as to say, they're not just accepting wrong teachings, but in turning to that different gospel, they're deserting Christ himself. Paul is warning against what's commonly referred to specifically here as Judaizers. Jewish converts who believe Christianity was still a sect within Judaism. Jesus was Messiah. They accepted his death, his resurrection, but that wasn't enough. To be saved, 
if you, at least if you were a male, you had to be circumcised. And then you had to become a Jew. And then you had to follow all the Old Testament laws and customs. And then God would accept you. And in Paul's warning here in these verses, we find at least three common ways to discern that truth from false teachings about the gospel. In verse 6 and 7, he says they were deserting the one who called them by his grace. One of the most common ways to discern the true from the false is to ask, is it emphasizing grace? Grace means it's a gift. It's something you don't work for. Or does it emphasize what you do, your work, your effort? You know, from the beginning of time, mankind's been religious and realized there was a higher power. And they've spent much time and energy seeking ways to be right with God, whether it's through the fertility cults trying to win the favor of their gods through sacrifices and rituals, or metaphysical ones who relied on mantras and altered states, or ones on keeping certain laws and working hard. Virtually everyone relies on human effort to get to God. But the good news, and what makes it good, is that that's not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. So rather than trying to work your way for God to God, God took matters in his own hands, and he came to you. It's his gift. What makes it good news is that God does what we can't do for ourselves. Christianity is the first and only religion where grace is the central element. All others are based on something you have to do to be right with God. Romans 11.6 says, If it's by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In Galatians 2.21, it says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness or standing before God could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So grace, not effort, is the key to the gospel. In addition to grace, not effort, discerning true from false, the second part of this is, it's Christ alone, not Christ plus something. In turning back to the law, those Paul was warning against were saying, Jesus was good, but it's not enough. Your faith is not enough. It has to be Christ plus law. Many around us will use the same words, quote the Bible, talk about Jesus, but the message is very different. You must believe in Christ, but here's what else you have to do. Believe in Jesus and be baptized in our church then you can be saved. Believe in Jesus and tithe. Believe in Jesus and obey these rules. Believe in Jesus and do something. The gospel says you don't do anything. It's good news. Jesus is enough. In Galatians 3, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So it's grace, not works. It's Jesus only, not Jesus plus. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul refers to a message that they had already received. Is it consistent with the message that's been taught from the very beginning? What the church has believed from the beginning. 
Because from the beginning, the church has taught and certain and held certain basic beliefs, core beliefs, not minor ones, relatively minor ones that are still important, like baptism or the Lord's Supper or speaking in tongues or things like that, but key issues that have stayed the same throughout the generations. Most other groups claim that somewhere along the way, the message was lost and twisted, and the church fell away, and whether it's through some gold plates and special glasses or visions of their founder, God somehow restored it. And here's a new book to give you to help you understand the Bible. There's one that even says, literally, that the Bible is a giant jigsaw puzzle whose message was hidden for 2,000 years, and now their book contains the key on how to put those pieces together to understand it. In Jude 3, it says, we are not... We are to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jesus said it's upon the faith and the testimony of the apostles that he would build his church, which the gates of hell itself could not hold back. Those beliefs, our beliefs, core beliefs, can be traced back to the first centuries. Even something like the doctrine of the Trinity, a favorite of groups that attack the gospel, say that Trinity is not found in the Bible, and it's not. It's a Latin word, not a Greek word. But the doctrine is based upon a core of scriptures and teachings that go back to the first centuries. Paul says, I want you to know that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ And as he received it, he passed it on, and it's been passed on, and we have God's word. Ultimately, that's got to be our foundation. Not other books or studies or what someone said or what someone thinks or how they feel. If you don't take the time to get to know God in his word, how are you going to be or be able to hold against the influence of beliefs that are error? In the end, That really is the challenge for us. Don't take your beliefs for granted. Take the time, make the effort to get to know what it is we say we believe in. Get to know which God we believe in, which Christ we believe in, the one who has revealed himself in his word. So it's a challenge for us to be in God's word, to be faithful to God in his word. Because it's God himself who saves us. Let us pray. Father, as we worship you here in this place, we thank you that you continue to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. That you have given us that precious gift of Jesus Christ. And you've given us your word to guide us and help us to know him to experience him, but it's always going to be based on who you really are, not just who we want you to be or who someone says you are. Help us to be faithful in knowing your word, for in knowing it, we get to know you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
幸福。